In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, we'll continue with the hymn of the month. The bridegroom soon will call us. The bridegroom soon will call us, come to the wedding feast. May slumber not befall us, nor watchfulness decrease. May all our lamps be burning with oil enough and more that we with him returning may find an open door. There shall we see in glory our dear Redeemer's face, the long-awaited story of heavenly joy takes place. The patriarchs shall meet us, the prophet's holy band. Apostles, martyrs, greet us in that celestial land. Their God shall from all evil forever make us free. From sin and from the devil, from all adversity, from sickness, pain, and sadness, from troubles, cares, and fears, and grant us heavenly gladness, and wipe away our tears. In that fair home shall never be silent music's voice. With hearts and lips forever, we shall in God rejoice. While angel hosts are raising with saints from great to least. A mighty hymn for praising the giver of the feast. All right, we'll continue with the um, catechism memory work. This is another selection from the table of duties, what hearers owe their pastors. We'll go right into the Bible memory work. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are, do I have the wrong thing here? Okay. And the Bible memory work, First Timothy 5. Okay. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching or teaching. For Scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. The worker deserves his wages. First Timothy 5, 17 to 18. All right, and we'll continue with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. Forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. In Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, 
that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. All right, um, just a final note on that hymn of the month. Uh, today is the last Sunday in the church year. So our year is coming to an end. Um, and Advent next next Sunday will begin a new church year. So at the end of the church year, the thing that we think about is the end times and especially the final coming of Jesus. That's what we tend to focus on during the end of the church year. And so we'll sing this hymn today. I believe it's our opening hymn in the church service. And a couple things to think about with the final coming I guess maybe the two things that I've been thinking about as I've been, um, you know, thinking about this Sunday and and sermon today and whatnot is that one, the uh, final coming, and this is something that we've seen in this hymn multiple times now, the final coming of Jesus is a time for joy for the Christian, right? This is a time when Christ is going to make everything right. And the final coming can seem, you know, when you read things in the book of Revelation and you read and you think about the final coming and, and all the destruction that there's going to be, it can seem scary, but it really is a time of joy um, because all of that destruction and all of that war and all the things that are going to take place when Jesus comes back again, those are actually for the good that is intended by Christ to work out all things together for the good of those who love him. And um, it's vindication for the righteous, and it is joy for the righteous. It's this concept we've been talking about in the prophets of the day of the Lord. It's the day when everything is made right, when everything's made how it's supposed to be. And so it's a it's a time of joy. Uh, and we rejoice that um, in that stanza in the hymn, right, that I shouldn't have put it away already. That from uh, from all ad- from sin and from the devil, from all adversity, from sickness, pain, and sadness, from troubles, cares, and fears, and and grant us heavenly gladness and wipe away our tears. That's the day uh, that it's going to be when Jesus comes back again, right? So it's a time of joy. The other thing that I've been thinking about with the final coming, and I'm going to talk about this more in the sermon, is that when the Bible talks about the final coming, it really is addressed, and I mean. It's partly nature of the Bible being the Bible is that it's addressed mainly to Christians, right? So um, you would think that maybe there, when we think about the final coming, there would be more warnings to unbelievers. Most of the warnings when it, in relationship to the final coming in the Bible are in relationship to believers. And the warning is that we would not fall asleep and fall away before Jesus comes back again, right? The warning is to stay awake and to be sober. Um, that's the parable of the ten virgins, right? Uh, that the the hymn references in the first stanza, that our there'd be oil in our lamps and the oil would be burning, right? But if you think about the the virgins, right? All they're all virgins, right? They're all they're all pure. They're all in the church, but in the church there are both faithful and hypocrites, right? There's tares that are growing up among the wheat. And the warnings that are given in Scripture about the final coming are not really about unbelievers, right? Because it, the unbelievers are obvious, right? The unbelievers are going to go to hell. Like, that's that's simple. That's obvious. Like, the in, in some ways, it's very little that the, does the Bible concern itself with figuring out what's going to happen to unbelievers when Jesus comes back again, because that's just, that's just obvious, right? But... What's not obvious is um, the people in the church are going to be judged. And we know that 
while many will be judged righteous, there will be plenty that are also judged unrighteous, right? That have fallen asleep, that have become lukewarm. And so uh, that's always a warning for us. And that I think that's really the emphasis of the end of the church here in some ways is this uh, kind of renewal of faith and warning to stay awake and be sober. Um, all right. So that's enough of that. All right. In the uh, catechism memory work, what do we have today? What hearers owe their pastors. All right. And you get this good image here of what the work of a pastor is supposed to be, which is that the ox is is treading out the grain, right? And um, doing this doing this work of uh, treading out the grain, right? Which, in terms of the pastoral office, is about I think kind of the the this this word is totally overused today, but the the daily grind of Paul Paul was talking about the daily grind before it was school. Have you ever heard that before? The daily grind. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, good morning. Good morning. So Paul talks about this daily grind of the pastoral office of tre- the ox treading out the grain, right? Which I think is the preaching and teaching, right? That's um, and you know the the kind of daily day to day. It's it's not always difficult per se, but this day to day work of of Treading, treading up the ground, right? Treading up the grain of um, moving hearts using the, the word of God, the preaching and the teaching. That's the work that the pastor is doing. And um, that work needs to be done, right? This is Paul's point, is that the, in the same way that the grain needs to be treaded out, if you want to have you know flour, if you want to have bread, if you want to be able to use the the grain that's been grown and harvested, uh, then that work needs to be done. And so you don't stop the ox from doing it. You don't distract the ox with other things. You don't muzzle the ox, right? You let the ox do his work. And uh, in the same way, that's the with pastors, right? This is um, they need to be able to focus on these things. And and so in some ways, this is a warning to this is a warning to the people, right? That um, the the people need to right as as Paul says the worker deserves his wages the people need to give the people need to um, make sure that their pastor has the uh, freedom and the ability to do this work right but this is also in some ways kind of a implicit warning to pastors too or maybe not a warning but a teaching that they need to be focused on what's important right um, and so it cuts both directions all right. That's the catechism memory work. Any questions on the hymn, last, the end of the church year, or the catechism memory work? Yeah, Steve. In the Bible memory work, it says the elders direct the affairs of the church. Now, is that what we do as elders, or is that someone No, else? that's what I do. So the, the problem with the New Testament, it's, not, it's a problem with us, actually, not a problem with the New Testament, really. But our problem is that we don't use the same terminology as the Bible tra- English Bible translators do. So basically what it seems like in the New Testament is you have Paul uses a couple different words. Um, let me see if I can remember all the Greek words. Right. But you have um, the most common term he Paul uses for the pastoral office is overseer. And we don't use that term really at all, but this seems to be kind of the general full-time pastor in the New Testament. I'll get in a second. Um, and we use the term pastor more for that, which the term pastor, this comes from the Latin word shepherd, which we don't, um, the Bible doesn't, actually use that often for pastors, right? The Bible uses the term shepherd more for Jesus, but the idea here is that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? And then, oh, I started to write 
shepherd twice. Okay. Um, and then he gives his gifts to administer, to steward, to under shepherds. Right. And then those under shepherds are what we call pastors, which are biblically speaking overseers. Okay. And then, gosh, let me see if I can get this straight. Um, my brain's not working right yet. Uh, in the term that he uses for elder there, I believe, is the term uh, diakonia or diakonos in the Greek, which is uh, where we get the term deacon. Right. And so I kind of wish they would just translate it as deacon because at least then we'd have have that. Um, so deacon and elder are kind of interchangeable in that sense. But um, in the Bible, the uh, the these deacons or elders seem to be ordained. Right. And they seem to be. Um, as in that verse, administering the gifts of word and sacrament. And so really these are probably interchangeable um, to some degree. Now, what is seems to be the case is that maybe there are kind of full-time pastors and then part-time pastors, right? Or um, even kind of tiers of, of, of clergy, right? So we... Um, also get the term in the Bible episkopos, which is uh, normally translated as bishop, which seems to be the, the kind of regional pastor, right? So you might have um, – these are kind of out of order, but what it seems to be is there's there are kind of these tiers. They're all equal in their ordination, but there are kind of these – organizational tiers, which we still have to, today to some degree too, right? That we have like a synod president and then district presidents and then circuit visitors and then, you know, parish, the other parish pastors. They're all equal in their ordination, but there's a ordering for the sake of organization. And that seems to go on in the New Testament that you have kind of the bishops, which are the regional pastors. You have the overseers, which are the... Uh, kind of general pastors, and then you have the deacons, which um, seem to assist in the pastoral office, but maybe aren't as full-time. Now, when we use the term elder in the LCMS, right, so this is kind of the Bible here, when we use the term elder in the LCMS or deacon, um, we're normally talking about someone who's not ordained. And we almost use that term similarly to how it's used when Moses, um, sometimes one of the words that when, when uh, in the Old Testament, when Moses is talking to Jethro and he Jethro, his father-in-law, gives him this advice of, Hey, look, you can't handle all these situations that are coming at you yourself. Um, appoint men like over uh, – like have, have men that are over 100 people and then over 1,000 people and then kind of go up the chain of command whenever, whenever a situation arises. And if the, the leaders um, – like the lower-level leaders can't deal with the situation, then bring it – then they can bring it to you and Aaron – um, he uses that term elder, like appoint elders among the people. And that's really how we use the term elder today, is it's these representatives of the congregation that do meet certain qualifications of leaders biblically, but that are um, not necessarily ordained, right? Now, um, the... When, well, there's a lot I could say about this, but um, hopefully that kind of answers your question. Is that we the 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 main takeaway here is that we don't really use the New Testament language per se when we use the term elder, um, or even when we use the term pastor for that matter. But that is what it is. I don't think it's a problem. I think it it just needs to be understood, right? Um, 
that when we talk about, when we use this term, we mean it this way. And when we use this term, we mean it this way. I think that just needs to be understood. Um, and it's natural too. I mean, the Catholic church uses a little bit different terms than the Eastern church uses a little bit different terms than the Lutheran church uses a little bit different terms than the Presbyterian church. It seems that when you divide denominationally, you, you end up trying to use kind of different terms to make things clear, but sometimes it makes things less clear when you read the Bible. So that's just how it goes. All right. Sam, that, that makes sense. Any questions on any of that? Yeah, Gary. Yeah. Um, that. Yeah, that they did. They well. That program didn't really go along with what is traditional LCMS church polity. So. Um, Basically, what's happened with that program is that it's been done away with, and then all of those people who had that were licensed lay deacons, which was a kind of made-up thing that happened at a Senate convention in the 80s, um, had a couple options of how they wanted to either continue in what they were doing or not continue in what they were doing, and um, that's basically all been dealt with so they either ended up going to a full ordination or kind of um resigning from that that position um but so i it's it's hard to say um what exactly happened because those situations were all very different from one another too so it's it's a, unless you talk to the individual guy um and exactly what they had to do and what what they did, um, but it it varied district by district, and it was it was kind of a mess. So, yeah. When we were without a pastor too, you know, that, mm-hmm. that seemed to change that those terms too to a certain extent. Because when we were in the New Orleans district, we didn't have anybody to go to that really. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, we could go if they went. We had to pay them to come up here. Yeah, well, um, yeah, no comment. <laughs> but if it, if it hadn't been for the elders, I think this, then this church would have closed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, in, let's say in emergency situations, you need people to step up. There's no, no doubt about that. All right. All right. Um, of course, the ladies also said that that's why we had elders, just because that's we wouldn't have anything to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, again, no comment. Um, <laughs> Gary's going to get me in trouble today. He's, he's getting <laughs> Which is not a hard for him to do. I don't know how to be any other way. Yeah, that's right. All right. Let's jump back into the book of Jeremiah. So um, we are, let's see here. Yeah, we got through 39. And we're going to skim a little bit of... Um, just the chapters uh, 46 through 49 here. Um, 46 through 49. Well, that's unreadable. Okay. This is the judgment on other nations. So this has been very common in the book of not only Jeremiah, but in all the other prophets that we've looked at. That... There will be this uh, judgment that happens not only – so when you think about the prophets, right, they're writing to Judah and Israel, and Judah and Israel are the main kind of targets of the prophets' warnings. But there are also judgments on other nations. 
on surrounding nations um, for their paganism, right? I mean, what's the reason that Judah and Israel fall into trouble is because they fall into the religions, the false religions of the surrounding nations. Well, God's also going to judge them, right? And it's interesting that this gets included with the prophets, right? Um, if you think about what I said with the final coming of Jesus just a little bit ago, that when you read the uh, New Testament warnings about Je the final coming of Jesus, like in Matthew 25 and 1 Thessalonians 5 and all these other places, that it's really directed to the church. And the reason for that is that it's obvious where what's going to happen to unbelievers at the final coming and that the church needs to hear these warnings of Jesus. It's interesting that the prophets um, are a little bit different in that they will prophesy basically to anyone. And I think part of the reason for that is that Egypt and these other surrounding nations, in a sense, have had the ch chance to hear the gospel. Right? They've had the chance. Uh, they've been around these Israelites, right? Egypt, for instance, right? was led by the people of by Joseph and the and the people of Joseph for for decades, if not centuries there for a little bit um, prior to the the time of the Exodus. And um, there's there's tons of evidence in the Old Testament like well going back to like Moses, um, how does his father-in-law Jethro, who's a priest in Midian, know about the Lord, right? Or um, Initially, when, when Ishmael leaves, uh, it seems that these what, not, what then later on become like the Arab nations, um, it seems like the like Ishmael had the promise, right? He knew the, who the Messiah was, or he knew about about the Messiah coming, right? That at, or Job, right? Job, we don't know exactly where he's. Um, kind of his background, but he's not part of the messianic line, and he's faithful, right? So there are there are faithful people kind of in the broader world of the Old Testament. And um, part of the conquering that Israel was supposed to do when it went into these Canaan lands, right, um, part of it was military conquering, but part of it was also what I'd call like kingdom of God conquering, right? Like the people that remained there, they were supposed to convert, right, and bring into the faith. And um, anyway, so the judgment, it's not just like this kind of, what should I say, um, arbitrary judgment on the other nations. It's a real judgment because these people really should repent and turn to the Lord, right? Um it's not just Judah and Israel. It's not just the chosen uh, nation that should return to the Lord. It's all nations that should return to the Lord, even in the Old Testament, right? The the Gentile mission gets really going in the New Testament, but it's not like Gentiles aren't supposed to believe in the Lord prior to the New Testament, if that makes sense, right? Okay, so anyway, um, with that said, uh, Jeremiah kind of, draws a target around Judah and Israel um, by judging the surrounding nations. If you go, if you just kind of look through 46 through 49, you get judgment on Egypt, um, how Babylon's also going to uh, come against Egypt. You get judgment on Philistia, judgment on Moab, and judgment on At. Ammon and judgment on Edom, uh, Damascus, Kedar, Hazor, Elam, and then uh, finally in uh, chapter 50, and we'll spend a little bit more time here um, in verses 14 through 20, judgment on Babylon, right? So this is kind of interesting, right? You get, um, so you have, you have the other nations. which are the nations that, for the most part, Judah and Israel have been, let's say, flirting with with their paganism and with their 
um, kind of intermarriage and, and other things, right? So these are nations like um, like Egypt, um, you know, basically all the Canaanite regions. So all the, the ites, right? The Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, so on and so forth, right? Yeah, you have Egypt, you have the Canaanites, um, so on and so forth, right? Um, at different times, right? You have the, Assy- the Assyrians. You have those other nations. Then you have Judah and Israel, right? The the kind of focus. These are the the Israelites, the chosen people of God. You have the northern and southern kingdoms, or the southern and northern kingdoms, to put it in order. Um, but then. In the time of Jeremiah, you have Babylon, right? The Chaldeans. And Babylon, the Chaldeans, they're the ones that are, they're the big threat, right? They're the ones that are coming from the east to overtake Judah and to overtake these other nations, right? They're they're coming for everybody. And the Lord gives judgment on who? On all three, right? And including Babylon, which is kind of interesting just because what is the Lord constantly saying about Babylon in the prophets is that what Babylon is going to do is the Lord's work, right? That despite this being kind of a horrendous thing that's going to happen in their... um, taking over and destroying Jerusalem and in coming up against these other nations, this is part of the Lord's work of judgment. And yet, they're also judged. And so it can seem, in one sense, like the Lord is kind of speaking out of two sides of his mouth, right? On one hand, he's saying what Babylon's going to do is my work of judgment, but on the other hand, he's going to he he says that what they're doing is evil, right? Mm-hmm. So in chapter fifty, well, well, let's just take a look at this. Um, verse start. We'll just start at verse fourteen. Uh, Put yourselves in array against Babylon all around. All you who bend the bow, shoot at her. Spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her all around. She has given her hand. Her foundations have fallen. Her walls are thrown down, for it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her, as she has done, so do to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon, and him who handles the sickle at harvest time, for fear of the oppressing sword. Everyone shall turn to his own people, and everyone shall flee to his own land. Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. Now, at last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Assyria. But I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days, and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah but they shall be fa- not be found, for I will pardon those whom I preserve. Okay, so a lot of things going on here. But um, let's think about how these things um, work together. So Babylon is very wicked, right? Think about what um, he just said there, that uh, the, the people of Babylon, right, and the, the work of Babylon... Um, they've sinned against the Lord, right? And they need to be overthrown. And if you continue reading throughout Scripture, Babylon is this image of wickedness, right? In fact, Babylon's, of all the nations here, Babylon might be the most wicked nation, right? Um, they, not only do they, you know, practice child sacrifice and all this, um, but when they overtake nations, they are um, known for you know, raping all the women and throwing the children against rocks and, and all these things, right? They're, they're incredibly wicked. But the Lord does use them for a work of his judgment, right? The Lord's promises, this nation's coming out of the east. He's raising up the Chaldeans. That's how the book of Jeremiah began, right? He's raising up the Chaldeans. 
and this this nation's coming out of the east, and this this warfare will happen, right? He will do what he said. He will judge Judah and Israel and the other nations for their wickedness. And so on one hand, he's using Babylon. On the other hand, Babylon's very wicked. And eventually what he does is he, um, he also judges Babylon. And he will overthrow them. Right? So Jeremiah here in chapter 50, he prophesies this time when after Israel has been scattered, they're going to get to return. Right? He prophesies this return from exile. Okay, so how do these things work together? Well, well, on one hand, it seems like the Lord is kind of speaking out of two sides of his mouth. We, of course, know that's not the case. What this shows is that God is capable of working good out of evil. Right. This goes way back to Genesis 50 when Joseph confronts his brothers and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good to bring about the salvation of many. Right. The evil that Babylon works, God is able to use to punish a temporary punishment on Judah and Israel and eventually we'll use it to bring them back from exile and to bring about the Messiah and to bring about Jesus. Right? This is part of the ultimate plan of salvation is the work, the evil work that Babylon does. And only God is able to do this. Only God is able to work good out of evil. Right? And so that's how those two things fit together. So it's very important to I think to understand that is that Babylon is not excused for their wickedness. Right? And the other thing this shows is that that vengeance – what verse was that? Vengeance is the Lord's. Vengeance is the Lord's. Right? Um, yeah, verse 15. I mean, to me, I always thought it was just pragmatic. He used somebody that was pretty brutal to take care of a yeah, it is. I mean, it is pragmatic in a sense. I mean, he's he he knows what's gonna work, right? Um, and he he takes what's there, but that doesn't ever excuse Babylon from their wickedness, right? He still will judge Babylon for their evil. And um, it is interesting that Babylon does become this kind of foil in the Bible for the the place of wickedness. Um, so one of uh, one place you can look, I was going to read a little bit of it, I think, is um, Revelation chapter 18. Since it's the last Sunday of the church year, we should read some Revelation. Um, Revelation chapter 18 is about the fall of Babylon. Um, this is part of the vision of the that John gets, right? And he uses this language from Jeremiah 50. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Right, And he's referencing there um, this destruction that Babylon brought upon all the nations, right? that they, they've drunk the wine of her wrath, which goes back to that language of Jeremiah, um, the cup of wrath that we talked about in uh, chapter, what was that, 25? Yeah, um, the cup of wrath that we talked about in chapter 25, which, by the way, this is um, this is not a Revelation class. We should do a Revelation class eventually, but you cannot understand the book of Revelation if you don't know the Old Testament prophets. Most of the visions in the book of Revelation are references to Old Testament prophets. This is why I cannot stand listening to people talk about the book of Revelation because most of the time they don't talk about the Old Testament prophets and therefore they completely misunderstand the book. Um, that's beside the point. All right. Um, the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Right, so Babylon is pictured as this rich woman who is uh, – this is kind of like the um, lady seductress in the book of Proverbs, right, who uh, 
on account of lust and on account of greed is very tempting to the world, but does not actually bring with it any joy, right? This is the vision of worldliness, if you will, right? You get, you know, money, sex, and drugs, basically, right? Something like that. And um, you think it's going to be good, but in fact, it brings destruction, right? And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered to her iniquities. Render her, render to her just as she rendered to you, and repay her double according to her works. And the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and am no widow, and will not see tomorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judges her. So again, we get here, Babylon is judged, and Babylon will fall. Right? The world will not last. And as much as she had fun, right? as much as um, she her sins reached to heaven, right? she's going to be paid back double for all her sins from the Lord, right? And um, so this is something to keep in mind. There's a great song, by the way, based on Revelation 18. It's not in our hymnal, unfortunately. But there's a hymn, um, Babylon is Fallen. That's what it's called, Babylon is Fallen. And uh, it's what's called a sacred harp hymn, which is, sacred harp is this old kind of, um, I think it comes mostly out of the Baptist tradition, of uh, a cappella singing in parts, also known as shape note singing. They have a different kind of music. Um, it's based on what's called shape notes. Anyway, so you can look up Sacred Heart, Babylon is Fallen. It's a great song. All right, <laughs> great hymn. Um, all right, any questions on Babylon, chapter 50, Revelation 18? Yeah. Yeah, uh, 50... Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the themes we've come across multiple times in in Jeremiah is that um, the leaders are um, majorly to be blamed here, right? Including and not just the kings, right? This this is kind of this does set Jeremiah apart to some degree. The other prophets have focused a lot on the kings and on the people, but Jeremiah focuses also on the priests and the prophets, the false priests and the false prophets. All right. Um, 52, uh, 1 through 30, we'll just skim some of this. We'll see if I can really just quickly, uh, chapter 52 is the last chapter. We'll just skim the rest of the last chapter here in five minutes and see if we can finish up the book. We've been on the book for quite a while now. So, All right. Um, so uh, it's, uh, yeah, okay, so 52 um, you get a longer version here in chapter 52 of what we already had earlier in um, chapter 39. Um, in chapter 39, which was this is the second account of the fall of Jerusalem, right? So this is when Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, is now actually taken over and plundered by the Babylonians, right? And and this is their judgment, right? And um, it starts with this King Zedekiah, who's 21 years old, and um, he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And um, he rebels against the king of Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king, comes and besieges uh, the city in the 11th year of King Zedekiah, right? And um, we already covered the fall of Jerusalem a couple other times in, in various places, um, but they break down the walls of the temple. Uh, they take out all the things in the house of the Lord. They take away all the bronze and the silver and the gold. And um, they destroy the house that, that King Solomon had made, right? So they destroy the first temple. 
Um, which, by the way, whenever you get to Jesus times and they, there's the new temple there that will get to the build the reconstruction of the temple, that's called the second temple, right? Because it's this first one's destroyed. So when we talk about the Judaism that exists during Jesus' day, we call that second temple Judaism, if you ever hear that phrase. Okay. All right. Um, then the people are taken captive, and we've talked before about how captivity and how siege worked for the different empires of this day where they'd separate people out and the people are and we remember we had that verse earlier that the people were scattered right in chapter 50 um that this is what babylon will do it'll scatter the people of a place so that way they can't rise up in rebellion right so this is where we get the what we call the jewish diaspora okay um now here's what's interesting so um, after Jedekiah, um, they, they do leave a people, in a small group of people in Jerusalem to be a kind of vassal state for Babylon. And those people do continue to elect kings uh, to a certain extent. Okay. Now, one of those kings kind of post-exilic is uh, Jehoiakim, right? Jehoiachin or Keen. Um and this happens at verse 31. So this is uh, this 30. The way that the book ends is very interesting. So we'll just read this real quick. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, Murad, uh, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king of Babylon, a portion of each day until the day of his death, all the day of his lives. Okay. What's interesting here, okay, so then this king um, is taken captive in Babylon and, and in prison, right? One of these kings of Judah. It's very kind of there, – there's no historical significance to this, right, that this this random king of Judah is taken out of prison and allowed to sit with the wicked king of Babylon and is given a ration, right? There's really no historical significance because he does that, and then ultimately he eventually dies. The sig- Why does Jeremiah include this? The significance here is that Jehoiakim, just like all the kings of, of Judah, are part of David's line. And what this shows is that there is hope for David's line, right? The book ends on this hopeful note that even though they're in captivity, in Babylon, in prison, there's this glimmer of hope that the king from David's line will be released and eat at the table, right? And it's I think it's messianic in this sense, right, that there's hope for the return from captivity, and there's hope that the Messiah is still going to come, right? And so that that's why Jeremiah ends on that note after he talks about the people taking captives to Babylon. He ends on this note of hope, which is quite interesting. All right. Any questions on the book of Jeremiah? Yeah, Gary? Did you have something? Yeah, I was just going to – how do those people handle their Israel? Like I listened to some of those hostages that they released – Yeah. I, I don't understand how. I mean, it was really sad to see some of those people talk to them. Mm-hmm. They, they would ask the reporter, would ask them, well, what about your future? Stuff like that. They said, we can't even think about the future. Yeah. Well, it's, war is always terrible. Um, and this is why we pray that um, we would have peace rather than war. And. In times of war, that it would be a just war, and um, you're right that 
it's hard to imagine having hope without Christ, right? Um, the As far as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, I can recommend one thing, which I think I put in the last messenger, which is a uh, there's a Lutheran pastor, Nabil Noor is his name, and he's uh, ethnically an Arab. Um, his descendancy is from, from Palestine, but he grew up in Israel, and then he immigrated here when he was a teenager or a young adult. And um, basically what he said about all that is um, it's, it, it, it sounds kind of cheesy, but it's, it's really not, and it's totally correct, is there's only one way to think about this, and this is uh, to know if there's no Christ, there's no peace. And to know Christ is to know peace. In other words, there's no way to handle this situation unless both people, both sides turn to Christ, right? That's the only, that's the ultimate form of peace. And there's going to be continual conflict and war and injustice on both sides until they know Christ, right? And, and both sides uh, at this point, unfortunately, do not know Christ. So that's – it's a very simple statement, right? No Christ, no peace, no Christ, no peace. But it is – it's simple as that. Yeah, there's a uh, – there's actually a Christian. He's an Orthodox, Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. But he became a Christian, and he's a pastor now. But he was a, a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi. Mm-hmm. He has a very interesting, and he's like ethnic Jew. He has a very interesting take on all that stuff too. Yeah, so. yeah. Listening to Christian converts is the best way, I think, to understand that situation because those people will tell you the truth. Yeah, he's pretty honest. So, about it. anyway, um, all right. Let's end in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this day, and we uh, thank you for the Book of Jeremiah and what it has taught us over the past few weeks and we pray that you would help us to uh, take those lessons into our hearts and into our minds and we pray that you would bless our worship today may it be in spirit and in truth and may you bless uh, this end of the church year and as we uh, look in the following weeks to begin a new church year together in the season of advent we pray all this through your son jesus christ our lord who lives and reigns with you in the holy spirit one god now and forever amen He says, he says, there's 